0: This morning, we left off only expositing about half of John chapter 4, verse 23. That is, the nature of worshiping in truth, as seen in the, as the emphasis of the passage, and the nature of worshiping in spirit, the crux upon which all worship that is true relies. And if you can recall, we also mentioned just briefly The nature of the coming hour that draws parallels between it and the coming of the now visible kingdom of God. During the sermon, um, as I so often do in my failing and frail human ability, I believe part of my discourse was unclear. And so before we begin, I'd like to set out to clarify something that I said, namely, in reference to a particular and loved song, God Bless America, and its relationship with authentic and genuine worship. It's come to my attention that one of the ways that that came across was that I was calling that song blatant idolatry. And I'd like to set the record straight for those of you that are here this evening as well as anyone listening to the sermon online that my intention was not to call that song idolatry. Additionally, I would not call any form of patriotism idolatry in and of itself. What makes something authentic worship is the attitude with which we approach it. As such, a natural consequence of... Let me back up and make sure I'm being clear before I just try to fill the gap with words. A part of the reason that we sing songs is to teach. And we're going to talk about this Towards the end of the month, I have a sermon planned on the different aspects of corporate worship. That is the preaching, the singing, the praying, the fellowship, and the communing. One of the biblical reasons that we sing songs to one another is to be an encouragement to one another and to instruct one another. The reason words matter is because... If our attitude is worshiping anything besides, and this is human nature, something that easily comes to all humans, it is difficult to focus our entire attention and mind and soul on God the Almighty. Natural human nature, read Romans chapter 1, is to take what is deserving of praise because of the Almighty, and to corrupt it because of our fallible and finite human reasoning. The reality is our finite brains cannot comprehend an infinite God. Because of that, the simple biblical truths about the depravity of man and the fallibility how easy it is for us to corrupt something that's beautiful and pure. What I should have said this morning was that we should approach every song that we sing with caution to be sure that we are worshiping the Almighty as we sing it. That is the priority of church. That is the priority, in fact, that is what defines genuine worship. I pick on, I have picked on patriotism mainly because it's low-hanging fruit, not because I think there's anything wrong with it. It's an an easy-to-reach and easy-to-understand illustration. If I've confused anyone by using it for illustrative purposes, Um, and that's been taken too literally, I apologize. Hopefully I've clarified that. I want to pick up where we left off this morning. I want to pick up with this notion of what genuine worship is and how it ushers in the kingdom of God. Realistically, I do not think that there is anything that you or I, that man, that humanity in any way could possibly do That would in any way cause God to do something. My view of God is such that He is a great God, that He is high and unreachable, unattainable, that we are not capable of understanding all of His attributes perfectly. Rather, we only see a glimpse of Him. As such, I do not fit in with the the crowd that would say that when the church is at its perfect state that the kingdom of God will finally come, I believe it will come as a surprise. What I mean when I say that worship is bringing the kingdom of God to earth is simply that when the church gathers and worships authentically, through our fellowship with one another, through the preaching of God's word, through our prayer, through the singing of songs and hymns and spiritual songs, we are quite literally transported in our minds to the throne of God, singing for His pleasure and His glory. I used this illustration this morning of God's omnipresence, that is, His ability to be all places at all times, always as a means to illustrate that we have never sinned outside of God's presence. Indeed, that is true. Indeed, God says of Himself in Jeremiah 23, 23, Am I only a God nearby and not God far away? God is everywhere around us. Now the question becomes, what is true worship? In our text... John chapter 4, verse 23. The Bible says, But the hour is coming and is now here when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. For the Father is seeking such people to worship Him. Worshipers is the word I want to draw your attention to. God is seeking true worshipers. Notice first that this word is in the plural. Notice second that a worshiper is referring to an individual. Worship, in every sense of the word, requires that it would be a participant activity, not a spectator sport. I want you to think about all of the different elements of corporate worship that I've mentioned in my introduction. Singing, preaching, Praying, giving, fellowshipping. How often do we make these things a a spectator sport? How often do we make these a production, something that we observe? Maybe fellowshipping, not as much. You realize you have to be involved in fellowship, right? Right? It doesn't work unless you're part of the fellowship. In fact, to be hospitable doesn't just mean that you're opening your home up to people. To be hospitable, in a biblical sense, means that people are welcome in your presence, that you make people feel welcomed. Surely we see that fellowship cannot be a spectator sport. What about giving? Can we sit back and let people give around us while we don't provide for the needs of the ministry, while we don't provide for the needs of the community around us? No. In fact, even in times whenever we are in need of help, to receive is to be a participant in the act of corporate giving. What about singing? This is the one where we get in trouble because well, I believe... In many ways, in our country, part of what I observe as I watch online worship services today with light shows, with the, even entire church organizations finding the solution for church revitalization to be to install LED lights and flashing lights so in a smoke system to make a production of the singing part of the worship service. Why do we not need all of those things? Because we're not putting on a production. We have a worship leader for the purpose of guiding the congregation in song. Why is it that when we sing songs, we don't sing songs with elaborate harmonies? Why do we sing songs that are easy to catch the tune of and to pick up on? Because you're supposed to be involved in it. There is a theology behind worshiping God in every single element that is there. We cannot neglect truth in any one of these elements. When we sing songs of praise to God, the reason the entire congregation is singing is not just for the edification of the saints who can hear them. It isn't just to torture our grandmothers with our poor singing voice. The reason everyone is involved in singing is because we recognize individually as worshipers that we are here to sing for God's glory alone. What about preaching? We've solved the problem with singing. All we have to do is get the entire congregation to lift up their voices like they mean it. What do we do with preaching? Isn't that just a spectator sport? Isn't it just one person that's done the work of preparing a sermon that everyone else could gather around to the lectern and listen to them preach? Loved ones, you've misunderstood what preaching is. This is a participant Activity. I try my best to make the point when I preach, every single time that I preach, to begin in my introduction with, please open your Bibles too. I walk with hesitance and trepidation and fear every time I stand behind a pulpit. When I first started preaching, I was incredibly reserved. If all you want is grammar and definitions of words, I would love to preach that way because then there would be absolutely no error in anything that I could do. But God has blessed me. He's given me a week to prepare. Not just to read his word and to ask what is the semantic meaning of this phrase, but to pray. What does my congregation need to hear, Lord? What do I need to hear? To sit and make confession. To acknowledge wickedness within me that is revealed and disclosed, as Jesus' half brother James would say, like a mirror as I read his word. Not one thing goes into my notes before I come and preach that I have not stewed over, that I have not fermented over, that I am not absolutely certain glorifies God. That doesn't mean I always deliver it perfectly. What's your responsibility? Your responsibility every time you hear the Word of God preached is to respond to it. To look at the Bible yourself, to check the references that I make, to ask how is God guiding you in this, and to make direct application. Worship. No matter the occurrence or how it might be performed, is not a spectator sport. It is not possible to attend a worship service and remain still. We must be moved with everything that is inside of us. Our spirit, our emotion, our mind, our conscience must respond, must be transported, must glorify God, and we must be drawn closer to truth. These are the two principles this is the two simple words of John 4.23. Worshipers must deal truthfully with God. I want you to notice the word worshipers that we've been spending time on. It has an adjective next to it. True worshipers. These are the ones who will worship God in spirit and truth. They must be true worshipers. That means that worshipers must deal truthfully with God. That is what is meant to say that we must worship in the Spirit. If we understand that God is all everywhere present, understand this, He also exists inside of your thoughts. He sees and is able to discern every will and intention of man. God knows what's happening inside of you. Yet fathom this, the modern tradition of man, whenever we are afraid, is to come to God's throne and say, God, thanks for not giving me a spirit of fear. And we call that worship. It's fake. We would be better off when we come to praying to God while we are afraid to say, God, I'm afraid. I know that you've spoken through your word and told me that you have given me a spirit of fear, but a spirit of courage. And God, I want to believe that, but I'm afraid right now. God, I'm scared When we're filled with sorrow, we go to God and we say, God, thanks for giving me reasons to rejoice. Is that true worship? That's a facade. It's fake. It's ingenuine. We would be better off to go to God and to say, God, I'm filled with grief and anguish, yet in my despair, you are there. You are with me. You are my comfort and my refuge in fear and anxiety and melancholy and a lost zeal for God's word. God, thanks for giving me your word. It's great. I think it's fully inspired and I think that it's completely authoritative. And God, I believe everything that it says, even when it hurts my feelings, except when it actually hurts my feelings. Oh, we'd be better off to say, God, I am challenged by you. And if you're not challenged by God, perhaps, may I recommend this? This isn't found in Scripture. This is your pastor speaking to you in a loving way. If you're not challenged by God's Word, start reading it because I'm fairly confident you aren't. It is challenging in every way. There is not one iota of Scripture that does not move the core of who we are as humans, that does not expose how far we have fallen from God's grace, how indebted we are to a Savior that purchases all of our sins. If you don't read the Bible and become broken, what are you even doing You say, well, I've just matured as a Christian. I'm not into all of that. You know how long I've been to church? I've been going to church since I was 12 in diapers. I was born saved. No, you weren't. No, you weren't. There came a day in your life when you understood for the first time that there is nothing inside of you that deserves all of the glories of God. That day came and you said, I deserve to go to hell because I am a sinner. And you looked to the cross for the first time and you saw the penalty of your sin hanging on a tree. And you said, that is my Savior. He formed me. He knitted me together, even though he knew I would rebel against him. He did it because he loves me and he came to save me. I fear the day that the church loses its zeal for the word. I do not believe that every local called out assembly by the provision of God will last until the end of times, but I do believe that there are congregations and churches that have fallen asleep. I do believe that Jesus still writes, as he did in Revelation chapter two to the church, that if you have lost your first love, your love for Christ, that I will come and I will shut the door, that I will take your lampstand, that I will shut it out. That doesn't mean that every person in that church is dead but God's will is bigger than man's. We make worship superficial. So often we think it's just a few songs, 30-minute sermon, a couple of prayers thrown in there, most of the time for transitionary purposes so that it doesn't look awkward. And then we go on our day. Worship is akin to entering the throne room of heaven. The picture of heaven that the church has given is in fact the assembly of the saints gathered together singing praises. <clears throat> For whatever reason, the church is afraid to deal honestly with God. to say, God, I see what you're doing, and I'm scared. God, I love your church, but it seems like things are heading downhill. When I came to Denver Street in October of 2020, I began immediately keeping up with some of the metrics of our church. The average Sunday morning attendance in October of 2020 was 31 people. That's the weekly average for the month of October. I was encouraged when we reached our peak in April of 2022, where the weekly average attendance was 63. This past December, our average weekly attendance was 33. It's easy to say, God, I'm not afraid. I know that you're in control of all things and whatever happens will happen and that's your will. But the truth is I'm afraid. Will the church stand and worship and say that I will be faithful, that we will turn to you instead of relying on our own ability? our own wisdom, our own likeness? Will we say, God, we are eager to hear your truth. God, we seek your truth. And even though we are scared, I thank you for the spirit of fear that you have given me because now it is yours. I turn who I am over to you, Lord. I seek you. It would seem that churches who are succumbed to what I would call pragmatism, are doing exceptionally well or at least doing better than the traditional everyman church. I think the falseness of idolatry and the pragmatism is more compromising and infiltrating work. I think it's the work of Satan. Am I extreme for saying that? Why is it that I'm drawn to a country church? Why would I rather serve a backwoods people? Why would I rather live amongst real men and women who seek God? Because historically, it is where God has done the greatest work. And real people giving their whole lives to Him. I'm here because I believe that the traditional church model is the biblical church model. Would you ask yourself the same question? Why do you attend Denver Street, not the nearest megachurch? Is it truly biblical or is it just a place of preference? And this is what I mean. I believe, regardless of the reason, you've made the right choice... But if you've made it for the wrong reasons, that's not necessarily true worship. It's possible to do the right things with the wrong attitude and not glorify God. Loved ones, our secrets are not a surprise to God. The fears, the trepidations, the concerns that belong to the private discourses that take place in our minds are Happening before God. He knows you better than you know yourself. In fact, I don't know if you've ever noticed this tendency within humans. Oftentimes we get mad or we get... What's another um, emotion that seems to pop up very frequently? Sometimes we get mad. Sometimes we get quiet. And it's not really that we're upset about anything in particular. Maybe... We're actually embarrassed. Maybe we're ashamed. God knows the real reasons for our actions, for our reactions. He knows all of these things, and yet we deal with him as if he was our best friend. As if he was somebody sitting on the pew next to us, that we can put up a facade and convince that we really have it all together. Why is it that repentance comes up over and over and over again as we read the Bible, and yet it seems to be a foreign concept to the majority of church members? When we hear in a sermon something that challenges you... It's normal to have an emotional reaction. It's like reading the Bible. You should have an emotional reaction. Indeed, that's a very good thing. Whether you get angry, well, great. Did you get sad? Even better. Did you get delighted? That's perfect. The point is this. We must evaluate our initial reactions because rarely do they exist on their own. If we're angry, is that our heart resisting God? If we're sad, is that the Spirit guiding us to repent? If you are delighted, is that God's prompting to tell you to say hallelujah? We were talking during our Berean Bible study where men gather in my office and we discuss God's Word. and. Uh, Well, various things. I think we did a fair bit of talking about Vietnam today, but we also talked about the Bible. How is it possible to read through the Bible four times and every single time that you read through it to find something new? How is it possible that as we spend time reading the Bible that it speaks to us in different ways? The Bible testifies of itself that it's living and active. In fact, As you read through the Bible, you find that this is not just some archaic text that you can study. I don't know if you know this, but seminary, I think, can oftentimes be called a cemetery. More people leave with academic rigor and walk away without understanding how to worship God. Do you know why seminaries exist? Because the church is failing. Do you know where men are supposed to be trained how to do theology? In the church. Do you know where men are supposed to be able to be trained how to preach? In the church. Do you know where women are supposed to be taught how to be godly in all that they do? You can say it. In the church. We've created these artificial structures because that is what is necessary for a church that doesn't care about deep truth. I want you to look at the rest of this passage. At the end of this passage, where it says that true worshipers will worship for the Father in spirit and truth, the next phrase, for the Father is seeking such people to worship Him. This is incredibly interesting. The Father is seeking such people. Who are the such people? True worshipers. The Father is looking for true worshipers. He's seeking them out. He's calling them unto Himself. These true worshipers, as it were, are those whom God Himself is seeking. Now consider that in light of what David told Solomon. I read this this morning from 1 Chronicles 28, verse 9. The advice that every father ought to give their son... As for you, Solomon, my son, know the God of your father and serve him with a whole heart and a willing soul. For the Lord searches all hearts and understands all the mind's thoughts. If you search for him, he will be found. But if you abandon him, He will cast you off forever. Now, without getting into the chicken and the egg thing, is it man that goes out and seeks God, or is it God that goes out and seeks man? We could debate that, figure that out maybe another time. I don't think it's very significant here. What I believe the Bible teaches, I'll just give you my understanding, is that God places within man the ability, the regenerate ability to turn towards God. And that those who possess this make a choice with their volition, with their will, to worship God. And then that God seeks out those who have made this choice to pursue Him, and that God seeks those out. You see, I think these things live in a beautiful harmony amongst each other. I don't believe there's any contradiction in Scripture. Rather, I think both the will of man and the sovereignty of God exists in perfect harmony. Worship is God seeking out true worshipers. This implies that these people would be worshipers already. Worship is the active deliverance of fleshly and temporal bondage. Consider this, for God to seek people out, what is it that we're actually seeking? That worshipers would be seeking God. We're seeking seeking deliverance, we're seeking this redemption, we're seeking this freedom from bondage, we're seeking to be in God's presence, and this is what God gives to us. He gives us active deliverance from fleshly and temporal bondage. True worshipers seek the grace that has been lavished upon God's people and rely on it for the providence of future worship. True worship is recognizing all things that we are yet to desire and praising all things that we yet already have and relying upon the grace that provides for us today to sustain us as we worship tomorrow. Worship is all-encompassing. Worship pulls all of these different aspects together. True worshipers are seeking this grace. This is real deliverance. Deliverance isn't no longer being sick, no longer being sad, no longer being afraid. Deliverance is fully relying upon God's grace. Truly, I tell you, the only thing that delivers believers is God's grace. This is a theology of suffering as well as a theology of rejoicing because these are one in the same. God gives us all the reasons that we are able to endure suffering, and He gives us all of the reasons that we're able to celebrate joy. There's an intertwined relationship between worshipers seeking God and worship being both spirit and grace, and God seeking them. Consider Hosea chapter 6, verse 6. God tells His people, For I desire mercy, not sacrifice, and acknowledgement of God rather than burnt offerings. It is clear God, even Himself, is saying that He wants us to delight in His mercy, in real deliverance, in His mercy, in His sufficiency, in the sufficiency of Christ to save us, in the sufficiency of His grace to provide for us, in the sufficiency of His Word to instruct us. Worship, if I can compare it to anything, as a leaving thought, as a lasting illustration for my loved ones this evening, I would say worship is like a fire. It provides both warmth and visibility. We cannot say that the light of a fire only illuminates because we know that it also provides warmth. We cannot say that the combustion of a fire only warms because we know that it makes a whole room glow. Neither can we say any separation exists in true worship and spiritual worship. God's Spirit guides worshipers into truth. Sitting in truth, brings true worshipers to seek a God who is spirit. These things are one and the same. They feed off of each other. Engineers say there's no such thing as perpetual motion. They've obviously never studied worship. God leads us with His Spirit into truth. Truth guides us into worshiping God And the more times we spend staying in this circle, the more time we spend worshiping God, the more authentic we become, the more holy we become, the more sanctified we become, the more delivered we are from our sinfulness because our habits are changing, our minds becoming transformed. Everything that's inside of us is being reshaped by holy, authentic, acceptable worship. That is why I've called for worship to be the theme of our ministry this coming year. All the doctrines, all the ideas, all the interesting parallels and literary elements that we could spend time looking at would only tickle ears and tickle minds. Unless our focus is on worshiping God, we will be afraid. We will be scared. We will see failure. But if our focus is on worship, our hearts will be in the same place. Our desires will be the same thing. God will truly be leading us, and God's church will be blessed because of it. Father in heaven, I thank you for your word. God, I thank you for your church. Lord, I pray that you would be glorified. God, I pray that you would be glorified as each of us go home this evening. That you would bring us together again soon. Whether in your house or in this place again. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen.